Welcome to At the Crossroads Church weekly podcast. Our hope is that you will grow in your walk with God and be blessed and encouraged in your daily lives as you listen. You can visit us at our website at atthecrossroads.ca. Great to see you. While they're uh, getting all the text sorted out, let me introduce uh, what we're doing here. Over the next four weeks, we're in a message series called Carols. And what we're going to be doing is looking at some of the Christmas carols that many of us have sung, maybe our whole lives, songs you've heard on the radio, songs uh, you've learned uh, through the years, and we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive. You know, Christmas is one of those um, sort of unique seasons uh, because Christmas uh, tends to have its own genre of music. Like, what other holiday season has that? Someone will say, well, there's Thriller for Halloween and, you know, a few other, like there's a few songs that sort of surface at different holidays, but Christmas has its own category. And I know some people uh, really love Christmas music. Uh, there are some weird people who like to listen to it year round. You know who you are. And then uh, there's uh, another uh, group of people that, you know, as soon as Thanksgiving's over, the Christmas lights are out, the music is cranked, driving us all nuts. Uh, most normal people, you start to listen to it about three weeks, four weeks out from Christmas, and it's like, you know, even the person who doesn't like Christmas music, music two weeks out, yeah, it just feels right. So Christmas music is awesome. Uh, what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks is just a few uh, particular hymns. We're going to look at four hymns or carols um, that have a history, and we're going to look at the story and the history behind the song, and then we're going to learn uh, some of the theology that's found in the song, because these songs that we sing often point to scriptures, point to themes in the Bible, and, and really have a lot to say about Christmas for us. So, you guys ready to dive in? So enthusiastic. I just love it. Thank you. All right. So we're going to look at the, 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 the carol, O Holy Night, is our carol for this week. You've heard it? O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the year of our dear, the, the night, the night. Thank you. Of our dear Savior's birth. That's what happens when you go off script. You make mistakes. Uh, you know the song. And for many of you, you've sung it. You've read the words, but never really thought much about it. So let's, let's dive into a little bit of the history. What you need to know is this song was written in the mid-1800s in a small town in France. And uh, in this particular situation, there was a priest, and they had been renovating a church organ that was like over 100 years old. It's a big deal. And the organ was kind of central in the, in the, in the church, and so they, they were renovating the organ, and in order to have it ready for Christmas Eve service, so they had Christmas Eve kind of special worship services, just like, just like we have ours on December 23rd, and we'll be gathering together more information about that at the end of the service. So they were preparing for that, and what the priest did is he asked the local poet to write a poem that would be read or sung at the, uh, at the Christmas Eve Event. The man that he asked, his name is Placide Capot. 1847, he is given the task of writing a poem or a song that is going to be recited at the service. Now, there's some interesting things about Placide, okay, because I'm going to talk about him throughout the message and refer back to him, because he's the guy who penned the original thoughts and words that were shaped into what we now call O Holy Night. Uh, he was a wine merchant, so he sold alcohol. He was also a lawyer and a poet. It's like, okay, that just makes sense, right? How many lawyers do you know that are also poets and sell alcohol? <laughs> That's kind of a weird combination. One of the things you'll notice if you look carefully at the picture is he has no right hand. When he was a kid, um, one, of his, uh, one of his friends accidentally shot his hand off with a gun. They had to amputate it. So as a young man, Placide wasn't able to go out and work at the docks. He wasn't able to work manual labor like many of his friends. And so he had to focus on 
books and studies. It's interesting how some of the things that we at first view as a setback end up becoming something that helps us step forward, right? There's a whole sermon in that. But here's a guy that's missing his hand, but who is able to use his skills and his ability to write. And what he ends up doing is he ends up uh, penning a three-verse poem. And the poem in the original language was called uh, Minuit Chrétien, which means Midnight Christians. And it was a call to Christians to celebrate Christmas and to kind of um, to, to celebrate him on Christmas Eve, and this was going to be recited. Now, the, the poem itself was taken, and there was a man named Adolf Adam, and we'll put him up here on the screen. Uh, this man was a composer, and he wrote operas and ballets in France. Now, this man, I'm sure, would have dreamed that some of his operas and ballets would still be, be being performed around the world, like that would be what he's known for, and what he's best known for is for writing the music score uh, that went with this poem. So when you sing, oh, holy night, this was his melody. This is what he, the music that he put. So you have these two unlikely candidates, a, a, a lawyer, poet, wine merchant, and a guy who writes ballets and operas, and their work is combined to create this, this song that we now call, oh, holy night. Now, what's interesting about this is this particular song, Minuit Chrétien, with the music, it, it started to spread throughout France. Right? It was very popular at the time, and it, and it went off really well. Obviously, the Christmas Eve service was a smash, and it started to spread. And eventually, this song, people traveling to Europe heard it and brought it back to Canada, brought it back to the United States. And eventually, this song found its way to a preacher who was also a music critic. Imagine that. Okay? And his name is John Sullivan Dwight. I like to call him Santa Claus. Does that guy, would that guy not be the best mall Santa you could imagine? He's just, that's phenomenal. So he was a music, and, uh, a music critic, a minister, and an abolitionist. He was very vocal about the abolishment of slavery in the United States. And so this is at the end of the 18th century. And when he heard this song, he translated it into English, massaged the words, moved a few things around, but the, the main ideas are still there in the three verses. And so we have uh, now, O Holy Night, with uh, John's final touches on the song. One last piece of history, and then we're going to listen to a performance of the song and just sort of take it in. There's a man by the name of Reginald Fessenden. He's a Canadian who was working in the States. He's an engineer, and uh, he was working on the AM radio, okay? And so at the time, the U.S. military, at the end of the uh, 1800s, they were working on um, radio transmissions so that their military ships and bases could communicate. And at the time, they were using radio waves to transmit Morse code. Beep, 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 beep. And they're doing that, and they communicate that way. But he was a pioneer. He figured out that you could modify the amplitude, amplitude modification. That's what AM stands for. You just learned something. Okay? <laughs> Finally, we learned something in church. Um, AM radio pioneer. So he, he figured, hey, if we modify the amplitude, we can actually send voices, and we can send music, and so what he did in order to show the U.S. military that his uh, AM radio tower and uh, thing would work is that he actually told them to tune in on Christmas Eve in 1906. He said, tune in your radios to this dial. And uh, so the military ships on the east coast of the United States were listening in, and the first ever radio show went live. And it was on Christmas Eve at 7 p.m. And what he did was he read Luke chapter 2, Right? And it happened in these days, and Caesar Augustus, and he read the second chapter of Luke, the Christmas story, and then he pulled out his violin, you see a picture of it here, and he played the song, O Holy Night. And so the 
The military men on the ships were listening to this first ever radio broadcast. That's just a cool piece of history connected to the song. I wanted to share it with you. So with that, we're going to watch a short music video of the song being performed in a, in a modern sort of version. And then, uh, and then we're going to dive into some of the theology behind it. So I'll let you roll that.
Awesome. Cool, eh? Now that is not exactly how the song sounded originally, but uh, yeah. Something special about seeing kids at Christmas, isn't it? Seeing them act out. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, so what we want to do today is I'm actually going to walk through the three verses in O Holy Night. I want you to see that the original author in his three poems, Placide, when he wrote his, his poem, he had three verses to the poem, and each one has a movement, has an emphasis behind it. And I want to highlight what it is and talk about the significance of that idea to Christmas and how we come to Christmas, how we celebrate Christmas, and, uh, and what it all means. And so we'll turn to the, the very first couple of lines in the song. It says this, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night, not the year, of our dear Savior's birth. Uh, the first thing that the author points to in the first verse is the fact that there was an actual event when Jesus was born. This is important. You go kind of take it for granted, but the idea that, that Jesus was born, that the Son of God entered into the world, that there was an actual date on the calendar, we're not sure exactly what that date is. People argue, is it the 25th? Is it some other time of year? We don't know. But what we do know is Jesus was born. And so the first thing that we're going to see in this first sort of verse of the song is that Christmas is historical. It's historical. And so what we mean by that is that Jesus actually existed. He, he, he lived on the earth. And now, even a skeptic of Christianity, a skeptic of the Bible, might say, I'm not sure about the virgin birth. I'm not sure about Jesus' miracles. I'm not sure, you know, people could argue all kinds of things, but not many scholars worth their weight would ever suggest that Jesus didn't actually live. Because not only do we have all the biblical accounts and the church history in the first century and people who wrote about Jesus and the things he taught and the, the church that he built, but also you have, you have Roman historians like Josephus and Tacitus and others who actually write about this Jewish rabbi who existed in the first century, real person, who taught, who did miracles, who created a following that began to, to go out throughout the Roman Empire, and this Jewish rabbi was crucified. So this is historically written about by others outside the church. So even if you're a critic of Christianity, you're going to go, okay, so Jesus, there was a guy named Jesus, and he did some pretty incredible things, and he is uh, a significant piece of history. So Jesus is historical. So he was born. So this person, Jesus, came into the world and there was a time when he was born and it's and it's significant so we turn to the next couple lines in the first verse and it says long lay the world in sin and error pining it's talking about the condition of the world into which jesus was born and if you study the bible you know that it talks about how all mankind were in sin in darkness separated from god things are sort of spiraling out of control and and what we needed as humanity was someone to show us a better way but more than that, we needed someone to save us and to, and to lead us to God. And so we have this condition that is bad, and it says he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. So Jesus is going to appear in the, in the midst of a dark, sinful world, and people are going to recognize him, and his teachings are going to impact people, and it's going to, it's going to cause a stir in the souls of men. And this is exactly what we, we see happen uh, following Jesus' death, and the church begins to spread, and the Christian message begins to go out throughout the whole world. So it's, it's historical. And the other thing you need to know is that Jesus fulfills prophecy. Now, again, um, the Old Testament is what we call the Old Testament, or the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish sacred writings. Uh, these, all these sacred writings uh, were written at least 400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. And they are full of prophecies 
speaking about someone who would come, a Messiah, a Savior, who would do for mankind what we could not do for ourselves, who would bring light, who would bring justice, who would establish a kingdom that would last forever, an eternal kingdom. So you have all these incredible prophecies. Let me, let me show you one, one of them that's referenced in the Christmas story. It's found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, this is over somewhere near 500 years before Jesus turns up on the scene. The prophet Micah writes this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. Now, Bethlehem, 500 years before Jesus, was a small clan, a small town. That's why we sing, oh, little town of... Because it was little, okay? It was small, very few people living there. It was not a significant place. All right, and Bethlehem is the place that the prophet points to. He says this in the next part of the verse. He says, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So there's a great king, the greatest king, will come out of Bethlehem, whose origins, and this tells us that it's not a normal person, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is an eternal person who's going to emerge out of Bethlehem of all places and is going to rule. And so when the wise men, who we're going to look at in a little bit, when they show up in Jerusalem and they're like, we saw a star, where is the king of the Jews and the, the scholars in, in Jerusalem, they open up the scriptures and they're like, aha, right here in Micah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, go there. They knew this was a prophecy. And Jesus didn't just fulfill that one prophecy. He came exactly as predicted. I have a few others uh, listed here for you. Okay, he was born of a virgin. Isaiah the prophet foretold that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born of a virgin, that God himself would be born into the world through a virgin. Uh, in Samuel, 2 Samuel, that, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. That's why when you open up the book of Matthew, and it starts with this huge lineage of all these names, this guy begat that guy and this guy, and you're like, this is useless. It's actually not useless. It's showing that Jesus is a direct descendant of David, just as God had promised that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. Uh, he was called out of Egypt. If you know the Christmas story, um, Mary and Joseph take Jesus away when Herod wants to kill all the children. He takes him to Egypt and then returns. And so it's incredible to think that Jesus fulfilled just the four prophecies we've just mentioned. Never mind the fact that there are over 300 prophecies in Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, every single one of them. So even if you don't believe Jesus is God and don't believe the Bible, how do you account for the fact that all of these prophecies over a thousand years or more are all fulfilled by one guy who ends up changing the entire world? I don't think that's a coincidence. And neither did the writer of this song. Let's look at the last portion of verse 1. It says, a thrill of hope. If Jesus is the Son of God, if he's fulfilling prophecy and he's the one we've been waiting for, then there is hope. There's hope for you and me that there's eternity with God, that the things he said were true. There's hope. The weary world rejoices. How much do we need that? For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Follow with me the logic. If Jesus truly was born into this world 2,000 years ago, and if he fulfilled the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, and if the things that he spoke are true, then we have a lot of hope, and there is a new and glorious morn for each and every one of us to embrace, to follow him, to enter into his kingdom, and to experience him today. I, I just think that's, that's incredible. It's, it's historic. So Jesus changed the world. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but I want you to understand that it, the impact that Jesus had on our world, like Western culture, the things we believe, 
uh, about so many things are, are shaped and rooted in the Christian ethic. They're, they're shaped and rooted in the teachings of Jesus. So Jesus didn't just, wasn't just born, didn't just fulfill prophecy. He actually changed the world, and we can't even, it's hard to even put our finger on how much Jesus and his teachings and the church has changed the world around us. You with me? So that's just all in the first verse. Jesus came. Christmas is historical. Jesus is historical figure who made a difference. Okay, so that's, that's verse one, real simple. Now, as we get to verse two, let's look at the second verse. It says, it begins this way. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle, we stand. Now, this is cool because it's a metaphor, obviously. At one point, the uh, shepherds made their way. We'll talk about them in a minute. They made their way to the manger, and they stood around and worshiped Jesus. The wise men eventually got there, and when they got there, they knelt down on their knees, and they offered gifts, and they worshiped Jesus, okay? And what I want you to see is the author is saying, like, in the same way that they had to go and find Jesus, we come, in a sense, to the cradle. We come to Jesus, and what began as something that is historical becomes something personal. And Christmas, is, it's great to sing songs about Jesus and to think about the manger and all of that stuff. But the power of Christmas isn't in its history, per se. It's in the Christmas message and the person of Jesus becoming personal to you. It's not just about thinking about how, you know, seeing kids in their shepherd costumes coming up and kneeling at the manger, but what happens when you and I bend our hearts to the Savior? When we consider what his coming means to us. And so the question for us then is, how will we, how will we respond to his coming? In the song, uh, the author is going to point to the wise men, but first I want to look at the shepherds, right? You all remember the shepherds, they're out in the field, they're keeping watch over their flock by night, when around them shone the glory of the Lord and the angels are singing. And, and here's what it says in uh, Luke's gospel, it says, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, can you guys say this? All the people. How many of the people? All. Does that, does that include people of every skin color? Come on. Yes. Does it include people from every socioeconomic, you know, rich, poor? Yes. Does it include people of every gender? Yes. Yeah. It, people of every religion? Yes. He came for all people. This is so important because the gospel, the good news, is actually for everybody in the world. If you have breath, it's for you. But it's also personal. It's broad, but it's also narrow. Notice what he says in the next in the next verse it says, for unto you, unto you, unto you, unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it's for everybody, but it's for you. Do you see how beautiful that is? It's available to everybody, but it must be embraced personally. And even in the announcement of the angels, it's like, hey guys, a Savior has been born. The one everyone's been waiting for. But in order for him to move from being a savior to your savior, you've got to go. You've got to come to him. And and this is the invitation in the song. It's like, okay, Christmas is historic. Jesus was alive. But what am I going to do with this? Am I going to approach it personally? Am I going to pursue him for myself? He's going to point to the wise men. So let's look at them. He says this uh, in the next part of the song. He says, so led by light of a star sweetly gleaming. So just like we're following this glowing light to uh, the side of the manger, he says that here come the wise men from Orient Land. They saw a star. They knew, okay, something's happened. Someone's been born, king of the Jews. We're going to go find him. That's what they determined. 
And so the wise men head that way. And here's what it says in Matthew's uh, gospel. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We want to find him. And here's what they say they want to do. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship. So they knew something had happened. There was something, a historical event had happened, but they wanted to experience it personally. They wanted to find Jesus and worship him themselves. That's, that's where the historic becomes personal. And here's the big idea, is that God comes to us. That's the message of Christmas, Emmanuel. We didn't even ask him to come. He came because he said he would come, and he came to save us. He comes to us and, everybody say and. That's why it's in yellow. It's important. We come to him. This is the piece that often gets missed. See, if you go to church and you read your Bible through the lens of God does everything for me, and I just sit back and I'm like, shower me with gifts, Jesus. Do everything for me. Forgive my sin, and I'm just going to sit here and be lazy and mean. It's like, hey, I know Christians like that. I hope you don't, but there are some out there. But here's the thing. He comes to us, but we also must come to him. Years ago, I used to lead a youth band, and we did this song by Delirious, and the song went, I found Jesus. I love the guitar part. I found Jesus. Some of you know the song, right? I found the Lord. And, and I remember we, we finished a service where we sang that song, and the youth, we were just like, yes, this is the best song ever. And this older gentleman pulled me aside, and he said, um, See, I just want you to know that that song's not theologically accurate. It's like, Interesting. Um, please explain this to me. He says, well, what you have to understand is we don't find Jesus. He finds us. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's true. He does. He comes to us, right? He loved us before we loved him. He came for us while we were still his enemies. This is what the New Testament teaches. But we also come to him. I bet you when the wise men finally got to the manger, they were like, I found Jesus. One of them had a ukulele or something. They were rocking it out, right? The shepherds, same thing. How about the disciples? Jesus came and handpicked the disciples, follow me, and they're like, okay, rabbi, and they're following him around. And then there's this moment where Jesus calms the storm, and they're like, God's in our boat. There's this moment somewhere along the line where Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it's like Jesus had already found Peter, but in that moment, a light bulb went on inside Peter, and he found Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? He comes for us, and then we come to him. We respond, and it's personal. It's not just historical. It's not just, I know stuff about God. It's like, I know God. God has revealed himself to me, and I've responded. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? So you have the historical piece, and then you have the personal piece. Let's look at the last few words in the, in the second verse. King of kings, thus... In lowly manger. I mean, you could just stop right there and go, okay. The king of kings, the greatest of all, is in a lowly manger. I'm telling you, when princes, when kings are born, there's a lot of fanfare. If a baby is born at Windsor Castle, okay, I want you to understand, the paparazzi are outside, they have the best doctors on call, they're putting that baby in a thousand dollar Gucci sleeper. It's a big deal. And here we have the Son of God laying in some straw in a feeding trough. He comes in a humble way. This is different than any other deity, any other story of any other religion in the world. You won't find other religions where they're like, our God came in a lowly way to serve us and to make us his friend. 
<laughs> no. Because until Christ came, the gods were above humankind as they ought to be, and the gods used and abused people to get what they wanted, and the people were there to serve the gods. And here you have a God who comes to us first and serves us. And Jesus becomes our friend when we receive him, and he, and he makes God our father. This is mind-altering stuff historically that would shape the way that people think for the last couple thousand years. So we have the event, Jesus came, it's historic, and then we have this personal aspect of embracing Christ and receiving him, right? Jesus brings God near to us, and if we receive Christ, he brings us near to God. Do you see that? Both sides. So, so far we've gone through two verses of the poem slash song that was written 175 years ago. Christmas is historic. Jesus is historic. But it must become personal. It must connect on an individual level. You must come to him as he has come to come to us. Think about this um, as we before we go to the verse 3. You know, Herod, King Herod, he was... Um, he heard about Jesus. The wise men came to his castle in Jerusalem, and they're like, where's the baby? And he's like, I don't have a baby. Where's the baby born king of the Jews? And he's like, I would like to know this too. What's incredible, though, is that he doesn't pursue Jesus himself. He says to the wise men, he delegates. He's like, you guys go and find Jesus and let me know. Did you know that you can't delegate your faith? It must be personal. You can't, you can't ride on your parents' coattails. Right? Oh, my parents are people of faith. They went to church. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. No, no. It's something personal for you. You, you. Some people will come to church and they'll put their kids in Sunday school and they're like, I don't really, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I'm just coming to church because it's good for my kids to learn morals. Like, that's great. I'm glad. But it must become yours. It must become, you can't delegate this away to anyone else. So historic, personal. Let's look at the ver third verse. This is where things get interesting. Truly, he taught us. Jesus, to love one another. Note these words, his law is love. I want you, this phrase, I want you to remember, his law is love. What does that mean? His law is love and his gospel is peace. This third verse, we got historic and then we got the personal. And thirdly, we have transformational. So if someone says, I believe Jesus was born, fulfilled prophecy, and I believe in that personally, and I'm engaged with him in that. The author of this, this poem and song says, it should change your life. It should change the way you treat other people. It should change everything. It should transform us. It's not head knowledge. It's not just personal experience. I love Jesus, and he loves me, but I'm a jerk to everybody I meet. Not that. It has to transform. It has to change us. There has to be something different about us because he came, because we've engaged with him personally. So we're talking about the transformational piece. When he wrote those words, his law is love, he's actually uh, speaking about John chapter 12. We'll throw that up. John 13, sorry. This is sort of Jesus's farewell sermon to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he downloads a whole bunch of really important information in this, in this message. He says, a new command. That's why he says his law is love. New command I give you, that you love one another. Now, if we could erase this, and, and they can't, so I'm just going to do it with my arms. But if we could erase this, and that's all we had, love one another, then we would get to define how we love one another. You treat me nice, I treat you nice. You get me a $20 Christmas gift, I get you a $20 Christmas gift, and we're even, right? 
You treat me bad, I treat you bad. See, justice is all about balancing the scales, right? So somebody does something wrong, they have to pay for it. Balance it out. Somebody does something good, they get rewarded. And that's balanced, and that's justice. But that's not the gospel message. That, that's not what we're talking about. Because Jesus doesn't say, love others as they have loved you. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus is like, you know how I came and washed your feet and I'm the king? And they're like, yeah. He's like, do that. Do you know how you sinned and I'm perfect? And you're supposed to die for your sins? And like, yeah. And he's like, I'm going to die in your place. Go do likewise. And when someone strikes you in the cheek, you turn the other way and let them hit you again. It's like, what? Jesus is like, no, you don't, you don't get to define love. You don't get to say, I'm going to love you the way you love me. You love others as I have loved you. This kind of love... It's the kind of love that changes the world. This is the kind of love that melts the hardest heart. It's the kind of love that changes us and changes the people around us. And what Jesus is going to say is that when we love his way, not our way, when we love his way, he goes on to say this, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The early church was, was persecuted, they hid, they were killed, and they continued to love their community. They continued to love one another. And because of that, they took over the world. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. And most of it was done not by force, although there is some history of Christians doing a lot of things by force. It, it originally grew and expanded because of the kind of love. People went, this is otherworldly. And it was attractive. So here's what he says in the next uh, section of the third verse. Change Shelley break. We're thinking transformation. Transformation. For the slave is our brother. This statement, I think, is one of the reasons why this song is sung today, why it's so popular. This was written in 1847. And for those of you that know history, 1848, the French Revolution began. One of the issues in the French Revolution, I did a big deep dive into it this week, it was so fun. One of the issues with the French Revolution was only landowners could vote. So you had a bunch of landowners scratching each other's backs, running the country. The rich kept getting richer. The poor had no voice. And they wanted justice, and they wanted freedom, and they wanted equal rights for all. They weren't even thinking about women. They just wanted all the men of the various standings to be able to vote. Okay? And, and so the revolution was one of the reasons why they revolted. And this song was at the forefront of that. This idea of the slave becoming the brother. Then, when this song got made its way to the United States right? Uh, ministers like Mr. Sullivan we saw, Santa Claus, right? He was an abolitionist, and when he saw this song, and it's like singing about how when Christ transforms us, we treat other people differently, and the slave becomes our brother. Jesus' love in us creates equality among us and love among us. And this song, again, it's amazing how many of the Christmas carols were actually part of the abolitionist movement and all of these types of things. It's really fascinating history. Anyhow, the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That because of people who carry the message and the heart of Christ in the world, the world becomes a better place to be, where injustice is impacted because of love. Did you know, I was, I was looking up online um, some different information about how much Christianity has affected our world. And it's hard to even pinpoint exactly how much. Uh, but I was reading a number of authors who were talking about uh, how human rights, something that we all value in our society very much, uh, the human rights are actually derived and come out of Christianity. 
where all people are equal in the sight of God. It's a biblical idea, not an atheistic idea. It's not some scientific idea. It's a biblical notion, and we all embrace it, but we throw out the Bible, and we throw out Jesus. But human rights comes directly out of the message and heart of Christ. Women's rights. It's amazing how much Christ and the way that he valued women allowed them to sit at his feet and learn, be part of his team. In the early church, they were so involved. This was radical stuff. And it helped forge the way for women's rights in the future. Hospitals, feeding programs, orphanages. Many of the systems that we look at, and we're like, those are amazing things that have helped people for hundreds of years. They actually came up out of Christian leaders with a heart for the less fortunate, for the needy. So it's hard to even measure how much Christ's message, once it gets into our heart and begins to transform us, shapes and changes the world around us. He finishes with this, um, his last couple lines. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Let all. How much? All. Not part. Not halfway. So people are like, oh, you go to halfway church. No. We don't do anything halfway. It's pathway. And we're all in. At least we want to be. That's our goal, to be all in for Christ. Because... There's no halfway, there's no part way, we, it, it's all in, all in. What I, what I want to kind of do is kind of close out the message, is I want to go back to the author of the original poem. The original poem in the French language is called Minuit Chrétien, Midnight Christians, and it was a call for Christmas Eve for Christians to, to embrace the significance of Christmas, if we can go back to the, or to the next slide and then we'll come back to this one. To embrace the historical aspect of Christmas, that's the first verse, right? Jesus came. To embrace it not only as history, but also personally and lastly, to allow it to transform you. What's so interesting, if you go back to Placide, this man who wrote it uh, historically, we're told that he, um, he was actually not a believer himself. He obviously knew his Bible because all the references and scriptures he quotes. And what's interesting about this is that this man who apparently was not a believer, a Christ follower himself, as he wrote this poem, when he was asked to write a poem for the church, it seems as though he was looking at it and going, this is how it ought to be. That if Jesus really came and if it's historically true, then it must become personal. And once it becomes personal, it must transform. In fact, the words that he wrote in many respects are a critique of the church of his day who were apathetic, snobbish, looking down their noses on those who were less than them. And his call is, fall on your knees. Be humble. Have Christ impact your heart so that you can make a difference through the love of Christ. So he's looking at it and going like, if I were to be a Christian, this is the way it ought to be. He came, it transforms it personal, and then it transforms the world. And he pens this song that has echoed for 175 years in the hearts of, of millions of people. And so today, I want to close in prayer, and, and our band, Jason's coming up to close us in a song, and uh, he's surprised by that, so we'll just give him a second to come up here. But I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to pray. And um, Father, thank you for this morning and for this message. The words of this song written so long ago have impacted millions of people around the world. 
And I pray, Father, that as we kind of begin the Christmas season 2021, that that we wouldn't just uh, view Christmas through the lens of history, and we wouldn't just view it through the lens of feeling. But Lord, that the message of Christmas, coming of our Savior, would be so personal, so tangible to each of us that it would transform the way we live. That's our our prayer. That's our heart, Lord. We ask that uh, in this month of December, Lord, that you um, would lead us into a true relationship with you, one that maybe we haven't experienced before. And And I pray, Father, that as that happens, you would begin to shave away the parts of our heart that have become hard, Lord, some of us may be like Herod. We're trying to sort of offload our faith to someone else and be like, yeah, I'll get to that later. And I pray that not one person would leave this place without calling up to you in their heart and saying, God, I make you my Lord. I worship you as my Savior. Transform me. Help me to love as you have loved me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our message. If you are in the Quinty West area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning at 24 Dundas Street West, Trenton, Ontario. Check out our service times on our website at atthecrossroads.ca.